Hi, I'm Graham McLennan, and today I'm heading all the way across the continent to connect with a former lawyer who has changed careers from law and now he farms the ocean. Let's get started. Talking to chefs and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. You're listening to the Chef Demoni Podcast. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Welcome back to the Chef Demoni Podcast. Thank you, as always, for joining me. And if you're new to the program, thanks for being here. A tiny bit of housekeeping before we get to today's interview. Last week, I reached out to you for some help with upcoming shows, and the response has been really wonderful. Thank you so much to everyone who's gotten in touch, whether that's by social media or by email. I'm really looking forward to following up on some of your ideas. One listener, Mark, who is a friend from my hometown of Thunder Bay, sent in some great topic suggestions and quite a few of them. I'm really going to enjoy working my way through those, and I think you will enjoy the resulting episodes as well. Thanks, Mark, for taking the time to reach out in such detail. Okay, to today's show now. If if you're new here, new to Chef Demoni, this podcast is all about food and Really, more than that, it's about the stories that we can share with each other through and about food. And simply because I've worked in both the culinary and the legal worlds, my guests on the show tend to be chefs or lawyers. Sometimes the same person is both. Today, my guest is Stephen, who is one half of the duo behind a really interesting business. Stephen and his wife, Natalie, are both former lawyers who both chose to leave that world behind to focus on a completely new endeavor farming salt and they now run a thriving salt works in long island in a place called well let's just say i had some difficulty with the pronunciation of this place am i saying that right absolutely not (laughs) okay (laughs) so let's just leave it to steven to tell you the name shall we You will also hear from Stephen about his time as a lawyer and what his food experiences were like then. And, spoiler alert, time was often in short supply and Stephen saw his fair share of Manhattan food carts, some of which I know from personal experience have really incredible food. Stephen and I also talk about his transition from the legal world and then into real estate development and ultimately to the salt business. And you'll hear that his previous experiences didn't exactly prepare Stephen for every challenge in the salt business. I knew at that point how to sell a $900,000 condominium. I knew how to finance a $90 million development. I had no idea how to sell a $9 jar of salt. But having started this business, Stephen and Natalie now supply some of the top restaurants in the U.S. In fact, We talked today about one of the must-visit restaurants that I mentioned on last week's episode, and that is Eleven Madison Park. Stephen and Natalie's salt is a key ingredient in the kitchen there. In our talk today, Stephen and I also get into some more existential concepts, like achieving perfection and what really makes a difference in the world. Any guesses on which of the two careers allows Stephen to get closer to the ideal of perfection? Okay, let's get right to it. I enjoyed this talk so much, and I'm sure you will too. Join me now for this continent-spanning talk with Stephen, one half of the duo behind an amazing salt company, the name of which you are about to hear. Stephen. 
Stephen, listen, thank you for joining me here today on Cheftimony. It's great to talk uh, sort of across this vast continent of ours, um, from the west coast of Canada to the east coast of the U.S. Thank you very much for being here. It's my pleasure. I'm happy to be here. We're actually located almost on the easternmost point of New York State on the east coast of the U.S. Wow. Amazing. So we really are spanning the continent. Well, before we get to, and and I have to clarify uh, pronunciation, I should have done this before we started recording, but a Magenset, am I saying that right? Absolutely not. Okay. (laughs) Amagansett. Amagansett. Okay. Amagansett. It's it's, it's exactly how it is spelled and not how you would, that's not how you would think. It's an uh, it's a Native American uh, word from the Montaukett Nation. Okay, wonderful. Well, well, listen. Before we get to Amagansett and talking about your new business, you and your partner Natalie used to work in the business that I'm still still in, the law world. You were both lawyers, so let's start there. Can you tell me about uh, about that career before you pivoted into the culinary industry? Absolutely. I, uh, I like many people, I went to college and I was not exactly sure what it was I wanted to be doing. Uh, and law seemed to be something appropriate for, for someone going to a liberal arts school. I actually studied biology and, uh, and I pivoted taking my bio, my biology degree to transfer to, uh, to practice the law. And it was wonderful. It was a way for me to be doing something um, legitimate, respectable. I moved right down into Manhattan um, after law school, and I practiced transactional commercial law for about a dozen years. Natalie's track was similar. She went into uh, after law school. She went. She went into another Manhattan firm, larger firm than mine, and she also practiced in in corporate world or in law firm for about a dozen years and then transitioned into a general counsel's office. Okay. Wow. So you both put in, uh, put in a good long stint in private practice. What, what were your hours like in those days in Manhattan? We always, you know, when I talk to colleagues in Toronto, the, the perception there is that none of us on the West coast work very hard, but everybody on, everybody on the East coast works really hard. So I'm curious what it was like in Manhattan for you. It was, they were hideous. You know, most of the stories, as, as you expect or, is, uh, or you may have heard, it was true. Long hours uh, and very unpredictable hours. I think the unpredictability was the worst part of it. I was working, for most of the time I was practicing, I was working in a law firm of about 200 people. And the culture there was you rolled in 9 o'clock, even 10 o'clock in the morning, but you left any time from seven until 11 in the evening. And the unpredictability was just, was just astounding. Uh, the work had to be done and you're expected to put in the time. Billable hours was how you were judged in many ways. Notwithstanding that it was, it was fun in a bizarre, perverse way. Okay. And, and how, how was it fun? Was it the intellectual puzzle of it or was it client interaction or the satisfaction of getting a deal done what was it that uh, that spoke to you for me at least it was it was the it was the challenge to try to achieve perfection i was trying to draft i was doing transactions uh and i was drafting it was a lot of original draftsmanship 
and it was trying to turn a phrase in an economical usage of, of words and, and try to solve a problem. And having these discussions with people across the table from you, and as well as people that you're working with. And then it was just the hype of getting the deal done. I was saying that sometimes you went into 11. We, I did many, many all-nighters going around the clock. You know, dozens of lawyers around the table trying to meet a deadline, sometimes artificial, unfortunately. A lot of times real. And the satisfaction of getting that done, that drove you. Can you tell us, Stephen, about, I'm curious about food experiences it, both both as a lawyer and as a lawyer in Manhattan, what was your interaction with the food world like in those days? Was it running out to w- one of my favorite places to visit when we're in New York is um, the Halal Guys at 53rd and 6th. And I think their I think their website, in fact, is 53rd and 6th. And so my vision of a Manhattan lawyer is somebody who's working whatever, 18 hours a day. And then running out to a food cart and grabbing something and running back to the office. But but please tell us, what was your experience of the food world like in those days? For me, my experience is sort of similar to you know to your halal court uh, imagery. Lunches were uh, running out. The food carts in Manhattan were buried. Uh, you always had your favorite one. I worked for a while in Rockefeller Center and, and around the skating rink. There would always be different food carts of the guy and the halal guy and the suvaki guy. I moved to another firm on 6th Avenue and up and down the avenue there was the fantastic kebab guy. Generally the lines, the carts that had lines were the better ones and I think that's still the case. Right, a good visual cue. And then unfortunately too much of the time the food was the catered plate that was in the conference room. We always had a list of places that we liked and that put out a a nice spread, and too many times it would be the tuna fish sandwich that was sitting on this tray for three hours that you finally got a break to go and pick up a sandwich. Lunches were not all that exciting. Uh, dinners were unpredictable. One wonderful thing about being living in Manhattan and doing the hours we were doing is that even if you got out, at nine o'clock or 10 o'clock. You knew there were fabulous places to go out for dinner. Being single and a lawyer in Manhattan was difficult because it was just unpredictable. You'd have a date, but I had no idea whether it'd be seven o'clock or 7.30 or nine o'clock. That became a little tiring after a while, but there are always places to go to. Yeah, exactly. Of course, the city that never sleeps, right? So it's, it's there when you want it. Exactly. Part of what I found really interesting was when we had clients coming in to, to town from, from other parts of the country and other parts of the world and hearing their experiences. I remember we did, I, I was doing a lot of financing with some, with uh, Japanese clients. And, uh, and I remember we had one large contingent of our, of our client coming in, about, half a, about a dozen of their executives. And all they wanted to do was have a typical deli lunch. Ah. We, we had cats's, I'm sorry, we had stage deli, I think, cater our lunch. And it was the hot pastrami and the corned beef and the sauerkraut and the conditions. Everything which to me was very, is very, very good. But down on the scale of if I was going to travel across the world, that's not exactly what I would want to be seeking out. But they had a great time and that was fascinating. 
Great. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, it's funny. Delis for me are an attraction when I come to New York because it's just, it's not, I mean, they exist uh, on the West coast. They exist in Vancouver, but certainly not in the same way that they exist in Manhattan. So I understand that. These regional differences are, are, are fascinating for us. A slice of pizza, which, which is also a staple of, of, of our lunches, a slice of pizza, I understand, is not the norm in, in many, if not most cities across the United States. And, and I don't know what's going on in Canada. But um, <laughs> Yeah, I, yeah, I, I would say that's true. I certainly notice more slices of pizza when I'm in the U.S. and, and particularly when I'm in Manhattan. So that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. There are a few places here, but again, not just not the variety that you're going to okay. see in New York. Yeah. Interesting. Well, listen, let's let's continue. Let's pursue the, the food channel here and uh, talk about the transition that you and Natalie made away from law and into what is really fascinating to me into salt making. So h- how did that come about? Salt making was really sort of accidental. This is a uh, salt making is something I stumbled upon when I was traveling in South America, part of being a lawyer was you were forced to take vacations. At that point, my wife was working in-house and she was required, Natalie, uh, we, were, we were just about to get married then, but she was required to take two consecutive weeks vacation. I was not, for me, it was hard to get away. But we went down to South America. I went skiing for, uh, for a week and I met Natalie in, in Rio. And we traveled from Rio to another city in in Brazil and called Buzios. And midway through, we stopped and there was this salt works. I had never seen anything like it. It was on the ocean. It was white and it was just, it was primitive. I thought it was fascinating. The next year we were in a Caribbean, in a Caribbean town, a Caribbean island. And again, I saw another salt works and I thought, wow, this is kind of cool. When we got back to the U.S., I wondered if this was something you can do where we were. I had, I'd been spending time in the Hamptons since I've been in college and the Hamptons is about two hours away from Manhattan and it's an escape. I think every city probably in the world has an escape place to a two, two or three hours away and this, the Hamptons uh, is it. And we've come out here um, and salt water is just part of, of being here. And this was, it was making salt and experimenting with making salt just appealed to, to my tinkering nature. And it was just something to do. So for since the late eighties, I made salt. I go down to the ocean, I get a bucket of water and I try to figure out how to go from seawater into salt. And I tried every which way in the world. Uh, and I was happy doing that. And it was, it was fun. As I said, it was tinkering, it was trial and error, it was experimenting, it was was busy work. What tipped you over the brink from hobby and busy work to to business, to career, to giving (laughs) it a shot commercially? uh, The recession. Okay. Uh, I had left left practicing law a few years before that, and at that point in my life, I was developing real estate. Uh, I transitioned earlier from from being a real estate lawyer to, to being a real estate professional. And the last deal, I'll say, was not all that successful. The, uh, the housing crunch and so forth uh, took a toll on it. Recession came along, construction loan. 
uh, was my lenders and their infinite wisdoms decided that let's not extend this. So I had a half finished project and I devoted time to get out of that. And I was nursing my work, my wounds because I had practiced law and I think I did really well on it. And then I was, I, I was, I had successfully done a lot of other projects. I didn't have to do anything. So I was mm. spending my times at the beach, taking long, long walks and having, having a fun, pensive time. And I was told in no uncertain terms, you got to do something, Stephen. Um, this might be great for your mental health, but it's not great for our marriage. And I think Natalie was right. My typical male response was throwing up my hands and saying, what do you want me to do? What do you suggest? And she suggested taking this hobby and seeing if this was a business in there. At this point, salt and our interest in food had increased, uh, maybe because I had more leisure time. And I took up the challenge and I went through the notes of how did we make salt over the last 20 years and what types what was successful, what wasn't successful, what, how did I want to see a salt being made? And it was pretty easy. I came to the conclusion that making solar evaporated salt outdoors gave the best tasting salt. I liked the aesthetics of how it was being made. So I spent about another year then trying to figure out how do you transition from a one pound a month hobby business to what I was guessing was a 400 pound per season hobby business. At that point, it was all just all just a guess. I knew at that point how to sell a $900,000 condominium. I knew how to <laughs> finance a $90 million development. I had no idea how to sell a a $9 jar of salt, and I'm guessing whether it should be a $9 jar of salt. <laughs> sure. So this was fabulous. You know, this was a fabulous experiment of, of how to scale up, and we, and we did it. The first year before we started, before we opened, um, I figured I had to have about 500 pounds of salt on the shelf in order to call myself a business, and that, that 500 pounds quickly left. That lasted us. That lasted us a few months. We had the uh, the misfortune of of having a mention in the New York Times, which caused us to run out of salt right in the middle of the holiday season. Oh, um, which is yet another. Well, what do you do? Mm-hmm. What do you do when your product is more successful than you really expected? It was reinvigorating. I'll say that for me. It, it was there was challenges in how to make salt, how to sell salt, and then dealing with new people, dealing with chefs. It was it was tremendously fun. Let's let's back up a little bit, Stephen. Can you tell me about the process? Uh, solar evaporated in in a way that's self explanatory, but I still can't quite picture it. How? How and in what steps do you take the water out of the, out of the ocean and get rid of it and, and have the salt remaining? Sure. Well, well, the sea, the ocean, is a solution and about its, its water. And dissolved in that water is a lot of different salts. Salts is our generic term for, for a whole variety of compounds, the product of an acid and a base, the sodium and the chlorine, the magnesium and the chlorine. And the challenge there is to 
reduce the amount of water. Right now, the ocean's about two and a half to three and a half percent salts by weight. How to reduce the amount, the volume of water to the point in which those salts, which are dissolved, come out of the solution. As a kid, you may have made rock candy. And it's the same thing. Sugar is, 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 is dissolved in water. And once the sugar gets super concentrated, it can't stay there anymore. And it comes out and it crystallizes. Mm. So here we're just we're evaporating the water. Some people evaporated by, by boiling it. There are other industrial ways to make table salt, for example. We put it outside. We take, we go to the ocean, we collect the seawater, we put it through a filtering process in which we are moderating the amount of algae and plankton. We're removing swimming things. We're removing stuff that falls down the shells in the sand. Uh, we're removing other floating things like, like the seaweed. And then we plant it outdoors in these big, long, shallow, what we call salt turns or salt pans, and we let the sun and the wind go to, go to work on it. Wow. Oh, and, and what are these is, is solterns? Is that the term? That's a French term. Yep. Okay. okay. And, and what do they look like? Would they, what it, what's popping into my mind is uh, raised beds for a garden. Does it look anything like that? Are they wooden structures? So in our case, that's, the, that, that's very similar. That's similar to it. And traditionally, what, what, we're, what, what we've tried to do really is recreate some very, very traditional ancient salt-making methods given the limitations and the challenges that our climate gives us. Traditionally, or nature by itself, will flood, flood the land and with, with, with ocean water. And if the geography and the topography is right, the land, the, the ocean water will just sit there. And if it's a clay type of uh, surface, um, those puddles will eventually dry out again by the sun and the wind. And that's how the salt, a lot of salt in India has been made and in parts of France and England. That's their salt beds uh, here in the U.S. and Utah. The salt flats, that's really what happened a very, very long time ago. We don't have the luxury in the east coast of Long Island, where, uh, where, where we are, to have clay in our beaches. We're very, very sandy. So a puddle of water on the beach goes down into the bottom of the of, of the sand very very quickly so we had to we turned to polypropylenes in essence liners we searched a long time to try to find the food grade materials that worked best for us and we've constructed in essence raised beds we have mm -hmm. our, our salt works covers about an acre of property and there's a series of at this point about 40 of these raised beds covering this acre property in which we uh, we constantly add seawater, this filtered seawater to it, and we let the, we let nature take over. We This morning, for example, we ran very fast and quickly to make sure everything was covered and battened down. I expect to be getting about two inches of rainfall in the next 24 hours, so I want to protect, I want to keep that rain out Tomorrow, hopefully, or the next day, we'll open everything up and it'll start evaporating again. The sun and the wind slowly go to work. We also have a very odd climate in which we have a, uh, a heavy dew. 
So we frequently cover the, the salt beds uh, in the evening and uncover them in the morning. Eventually, the solution has gone, the seawater has gone from the two and a half, three percent up to about 25% salt. And at that point, the crystals start to appear. And it's just amazing. It's again, it's nature, but we're we're helping it along a little bit by 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 protecting the process. I guess that's probably a better term, a good term for it. Can you describe the differences? Um, because I read this in one article about your business, the, the seasonal differences. And of course, it makes sense to me that there would be a time difference. You know, when it's hot and sunny in August, you're you're going to produce those crystals quicker than when it's cold and rainy in January. But maybe talk about that a little bit, the times to produce salt, but also the different results that you get at different times of year. Right, right. And this, and I'll, and I'll, and I'll digress for a second saying that although there are differences to it, this is something, these differences are a challenge to, to me as, as a producer, as a food producer. The salt I make in the winter tastes different than the salt that I make in the summer. Most of my clients don't want that difference. Mm. So many products, we want to be a commodity sure. that, that, yep. that, that, that is uniform. Sugar is always supposed to be sugar. Every teaspoon or tablespoon should be the same. And for the most part, that's what our Westwood home consumers want. And in many, many, many cases, that's even what chefs at, at wonderful restaurants want. Salt should be salt. So part of my challenge is how to accommodate that. So like a winemaker, we actually uh, we blend our salts. So the salt, okay. so the yeah. salt that you'll buy, for the most part, is a function of salt that we've harvested 12 months out of a year, out of the year, where um, you don't want my. Many people don't want my winter salt. Many people only want this uniform product. The differences that come about are flavor. Generally, our texture and the color, they're uniform, but the flavors that change. Flavor of salt is a function not only of the chemicals of the different salts in there, but other stuff. And those other stuffs are organics. And and earlier I said that we filter filter the water. One of the filtering processes we're doing is looking at plankton and algae. We're okay. trying we're trying to moderate the amount of plankton and algae that's in the water because that's where flavor comes from. That's why the salt I'll make here in Amagansett tastes different than the salt that might be made in Oregon, which will taste different than the salt that's being made in the Mediterranean. Those the chemicals are the same, but my algae is different than algae 200, 2,000 miles away. The algaes that are, that are running through the water also change seasonally. But more important than that, the process takes longer. Right now, and we're sitting here, it's, in, it's the beginning of July, the salt that I planted yesterday, that will start harvesting in about three weeks from now. The salt that I, the water that I'll plant in November, that's going to be sitting in my salt plans for about three or four months. Wow. During that time, the algae has a longer time to bloom and to grow. Part of my job as a salt maker is to try to figure out how much time is going to be involved, which is going to allow this algae to grow to a certain point and then stop. 
salt is a preservative. It inhibits growth. So when, when the solution becomes a certain percentage, the algae just stops growing. It just can't survive anymore. Right. Yeah. So I'm trying to try to figure out how long is that going to take, meaning how long, how much algae is there going to be, and try to try to produce a rather reasonable amount of it, a rather consistent amount of it. In addition to that, we're blessed by being open air in a very pristine part of the world with ocean breezes surrounded by organic farms. So it just makes sense that if my product, if my raw product is sitting outside for three weeks to three months, it's going to be bringing in flavors from its surroundings. Sure. To me, this is what's exciting. This is one reason why we, we opted to be outdoors. We have this resource of, 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 of the atmosphere. Why not use it? And that is, uh, and there's flavor. There's flavor in the ocean. Uh, there's flavor on, right now there are carrots next to our salt works. So my salt this year is tasting slightly different than the salt I might have made three years ago in which it was just flowers. And, and, and that's, to me, that's fascinating. And that's what differentiates my product being made outdoors from something that's being made in a factory and even a greenhouse. A greenhouse, in essence, is a factory to me. Yeah. You know what's coming to mind for me, Stephen, is this natural wine movement where the producers are very much, as I understand it, very much trying to work with the natural surroundings and be as non-interventionist as possible in a, you know, in a chemical or factory uh, sort of way and see what the land, what the environment produces. And I'm fascinating, fascinated because it sounds like you're taking a very similar approach with your, with your salt. Exactly. Long time ago, when we first started, or maybe, maybe a year or two after, we were visited by, by a chef who brought his kitchen crew out to us. And he, and he mentioned to me, and he mentioned that he sees my salt as an ingredient. Which I nodded my head and I said, yeah. you know, thanks a lot. And it didn't mean any, it really didn't mean anything to me uh, until one of, one of his sous chefs came up and said, did you understand what chef told you? Mm. And I said, no, I don't. And he said, he chooses to use your salt because it's not this commodity that just comes in a box that is indistinguishable from anything else. He's saying when he puts, he chooses your, he chooses to use your salt because it tastes it's as important to the dish as the tomato, and it's 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 a specific a specific ingredient. It's a specific component that has its own flavors. And I said, "Well, thank you for translating." I guess there's this world of of, of chef talk that I don't yet understand. And and I and I felt a whole lot. I felt very very good about that. But but you're absolutely right. There is a flavor. You know, we talk. We talk so much in the food world about the quality of ingredients and, and, and you can taste the terroir um, and how a hothouse tomato just never tastes as good as a tomato grown outside. And you start putting all this together and you say, well, why? You know, what, what is behind these? And it's not the unpredictability, but it's all these variations. I was I was speaking to another chef and he said one of my greatest challenges 
is is striving for perfection every single day, knowing that every time I'm cooking the same dish, it's never going to be the same. It's not. It's never the same tomato. It's never the same chicken. They may all look the same, but they're always going to taste different. And each time I have to make the most perfect dish, but Monday's dish is not going to taste like Tuesday's dish. But I need to make them both as good as possible, but different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that and that to me, as somebody who's uh, appreciative of food, I guess is the way to put it, is the is the beauty in it. Right. It's yes. when when you have people who know what they're doing. To me, it's OK that it doesn't taste like Monday on Tuesday. I would rather it taste like Tuesday so long as Tuesday tastes good. And with people who know what they're doing, that's that's almost certainly going to be the case. There was a movie that I greatly enjoyed a few years ago in which a chef was interviewing some sous chefs and they went to uh, to a fast food chain. And and the chef asked the, uh, asked the person he was interviewing, what's wrong with this hamburger? And, they, and, and the sous chef said, because it's, it's horrible quality meat and it's too salty and this and this. He said, no, that's not it. It's actually good meat. It's this. It's, it's, they're all the same. It's all uniform. And that's what's wrong. And, 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 I, and, I, and I agree with that. Stephen, tell me, was one of the chefs who uh, who came to your – how do you describe your premises? Do you call it a farm? So I go back and forth between a farm, but I like to call it a salt works. Okay. Okay. Sure. Fair enough. I like I like both of those. Salt works. <laughs> I particularly like that. Well, was one of the chefs who's come to your salt works Daniel Hum? Daniel was there. He's been there a couple times with us. Daniel is absolutely wonderful with us. He um, One of his sous chefs – found us at a farmer's market. When, when we started off this venture, we, we tried to say, what was the least expensive way to try this out? And, um, and we came to the conclusion that farmer's market was you know, a four or $500 investment. And you can go there and you could see if people will, would, 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 would buy your product. And I was there one August day and someone came up and seemed knowledgeable of what I was sort of doing. He knew how he seemed to know how to cook, um, and he introduced himself as a sous chef at, at a restaurant in Manhattan by the name of Eleven Madison Park. And when I went back home, I asked Natalie, "You know, what's this Eleven Madison Park?" And she said, "Well, don't you remember we went, we had dinner dinner there a couple of a couple of years ago?" And I said, "Oh yeah, that was kind of cool." Mm-hmm. We got a phone call that same afternoon. From someone at Eleven Madison Park and asking us if saying Chef Un was going to be in in town tomorrow, could we overnight him five kilos of our salt? <laughs> wow. And and I said no. First, where where we are, FedEx. Unlike unlike my days of practicing law, in which I knew if I got to the FedEx office on Eleventh Avenue and Forty First Street, they're open until midnight. And they can FedEx there. Here in Amagansett, FedEx last pickup is at four in the afternoon, and it's about you know three thirty. And I probably didn't have five kilos on hand at that point that were mm-hmm. that were ready to go out. And I said no. And they said, well, can you send it? When can you send it? I said, well, mm-hmm. you probably get it the next day. And shortly after that, we were we were being asked whether we could be supplying Eleven Madison Park, and we started a relationship which continues. Hopefully, once the COVID's uh, uh, away and everything's open up, hopefully they're back 
doing what they do so well. But Daniel has visited us a couple of times. He brought his entire staff out to us. They had a team building exercise on the beach and at the farm. Shortly after uh, he won a James Beard Award, uh, we had a um, one of his one of his sponsors came up and had an event at our Salt Works. He's been wonderful. He gave us a lot of credibility, which started opening doors uh, for people listening to us. I, I bet it's it's so interesting because just last week on this show, I talked about New York and some of the places my wife and I have visited over the years, and and places that we're looking forward to going to either again or for the first time. And Eleven Madison Park is definitely on the list as a first time place. I haven't yet because as much as I want to go in in a very practical way, these three star restaurants are a commitment, right? You got to think about it before you devote the financial resources to going. But I had read an article, I think on Bloomberg, where Chef Daniel had talked about uncertainty as to whether 11 Madison Park would come back, given the current climate and everything that's going on. And so I thought, oh my goodness. So once COVID is under control and fingers crossed it comes back, I have to go. So this discussion is timely on that front. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful time. It's a wonderful place. It is an investment, not only of money, but it's a three to four hour hunk of your hunk of your life. It's certainly not something that I can or or or, or really want to do on a monthly basis. But I've been very fortunate that I've been there uh, a handful of times, a couple times guests as a guest of the restaurant. And it's just wonderful. It's it's magical. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Well, that cinches it. I am definitely going to go. Just a couple of more questions, Stephen. Can you tell us a bit about what your business looks like in terms of, and I, I take COVID out of it because I know everything is in a, a very disrupted environment right now, but uh, retail versus website versus I guess wholesale wouldn't really, or tell me, I'm guessing it wouldn't really be part of the business or a big part of the business. As I envision it, it would be retail website and then the the restaurant trade. So maybe tell us about how your business breaks down over those channels. Sure. Well, we make in a typical in a typical year, and then actually we've been, we've scaled up every year in operation. With this year being an exception, we've increased our capacity. So the prior year, we made just shy of seven tons of salt in the year. <laughs> okay. And all this is being made by hand. Lots of lots of lots of hands making making this salt. Sometimes not enough hands. Of that volume, about half of that goes into the bulk business, and that is comprised of restaurants as well as other food makers. We sell a surprising amount of salt to beer makers and other beverage makers. Oh. We sell salt to uh, to to bakers. We sell salt to chocolate makers, and those sales are going in. Two and a half kilo bags. Our salt to them, we get. I get a lot of inquiries from pretzel makers, and it's just not economical for them. But every week in normal times, we're sending anywhere from fifty pounds up across the country to Michelin-starred restaurants to cook with, and that's tremendously satisfying to us. It's telling me I'm doing something really good, and I want to continue doing. That's about half of the volume, and that's about a third of the revenue. Lower margin, more predictability. Mm-hmm. That's a that's that's a good risk reward type of uh, type of model in my mind. Of the balance of the of the 
of of the of the of the production. And I'll say I I hard I, I never end up the year with a surplus of salt making me feel comfortable. It's always mm. I'm looking. You know, March comes along. And I open up the, the door and I say, well, what's what do I have ready to go? And we look out in the salt works and try to see what's going to be coming in soon. Freezing weather gets in the way. Will we will we make it? Do I need to turn down new business? Fortunately, none of that's ever happened. But of the balance of, of that production, about half of that goes into wholesale to stores. Okay. Uh, and then the other half or, for us is, is direct retail. Uh, we sell through our website. We sell through, we sell our pure salt, not our flavored blends uh, on Amazon. And this year we've opened it up to a couple of other, a couple of other online sites trying to replace some of the lost restaurant business and, and deal with some of our surplus that, that we have by not supplying them. Right. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. It's, it, it's interesting. I've seen, I can think of one business in particular here in Vancouver that pivoted from supplying restaurants to uh, very quickly developing a, a delivery and distribution channel to, uh, to the retail market out of necessity. Can, can you tell me, Stephen, do you and, and or Natalie, do you see any similarities between this business, between your salt making business and your former careers as lawyers? I'm always curious for any similarities between the culinary and the legal world? I think I think there's a lot of similarities. Yes, um, but I'm not I'm not positive. I'm not convinced that those similarities are how I attack it, and how I would attack any business. But I think there are. I think that both, especially for us, in which we made a business in an un, very unusual way. There's not a there's not a manual of how to make salt, at least in the way that that we chose to do it. Everything was issue spotting, mm-hmm. research, and then then a bit of trial and error. And an issue spotting is certainly what law is about: is spotting issues, thinking of solution. How do I solve this solution? And then putting it into effect and seeing if it actually works we've made lots and lots of mistakes fortunately our mistakes were never very large scale i guess this is how it is dissimilar you know if i made a mistake drafting a loan document somehow that's a 10 million dollar mistake rather than okay i lost a hundred dollars from uh, from having the wrong type of filtering material and then it's the attention to detail i approached my legal career, and maybe this one one reason why I didn't I, I, I decided to leave it, that I wanted to I wanted to go I wanted to write the best document. I wanted to I wanted to try to I wanted to give to do the best job possible and time frequently just got in the way of doing that. Same thing with salt. I chose we we chose to make a really really high quality salt, and we were very fortunate that we were able to do that in an area of the world that had a market that we thought could that could support it. A lot of hand work is going on to do what we're doing, and there's a cost to it. In the legal world, I became a little discouraged that trying to achieve perfection. Never was 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 not always what my clients really wanted, or was willing to pay for. Pay for sure. 
And I sort of became aware of the fact that it's not, and it's, it's not necessarily attainable. And for the most part, it doesn't make a difference. Mm. While Mm -hmm. I'm, while making, even though we're making close to seven tons of salt, there is a market for this high end salt that appreciates what we're doing, that knows that what I'm doing is not only different than the salt you'll get in the red box for, you know, three pounds for, you know, for five dollars. It's also better than the high-end gourmet flake salt that you'll pay a lot more for. Uh, but but there's a market for it that, unlike the lawyer I would go to to get a power of attorney prepared, in which, honestly, you can go to the stationery store and do that. Although my power of attorney, I would write, might be better than the stationery store power of attorney. It doesn't make a difference. Mm. I, what, one, of, one of the last... One of the last deals that I that I did, it was somewhat discouraging to me in that near the end of this huge transaction, there was a week-long closing and lawyers from all over the country flying in and out, and we were going 24 hours a day trying to pull together this big cogeneration plant. And the at the end of the deal, I noticed there were a whole bunch of new lawyers, and we knew they were new because I hadn't seen them before, but more important than that, they were fresh. They hadn't been around, uh, you know, working around the clock for, for a week, and they were fresh. I asked someone, who are these people? And they said, well, those are the litigators. Mm. What do you mean? We haven't closed the deal yet. We haven't even closed the deal. And he said, well, we know there are a couple issues that we can't resolve, but we're going to close the deal nevertheless, and those may end up in court. Mm. And to me, that was so, that was not very satisfying that mm-hmm. we're, working and you're charging millions of dollars of legal fees here and you and you and you could not achieve perfection and you you people were just throwing their hands up in the air and saying well we're not even going to try i didn't like that 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 struck me that struck me wrong i had another client in which i rendered the bill to the borrower i was representing a lender and rendered our our bill and they said well this is you know this is 50 cents more square foot than i than i had budgeted and my client pressured me to lower the bill, and I realized that the work on the table, the words on the document, didn't make that much difference. It mm. was my work as a lawyer, sometimes, not always, always, was a, necess- was a necessary part of making the deal done, but a good deal, no one ever looks at the words again. That you just mm-hmm. move on, and that when you do look at the words, it didn't. Many times, doesn't matter. The, the, the standard is not whether you're right or wrong, but can you withstand a motion for summary judgment and bring mm-hmm. the other table to the to bring the other party to the table to negotiate an outcome. What I'm trying to do here, I'm 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 trying to achieve the highest degree possible, not so much for my clients, but for myself. Hmm. And I'm very fortunate in that there's enough people, both in the home and in the kitchen, who appreciate that and, 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 want, and want to buy that type of product. And to me, that's very, very special. And that's great. That's wonderful. If I can sum that up, it sounds like it hits home on a gut level, uh, on a satisfying gut level, much more than the law ever did for you. Yes. Certainly, yeah. law made me a lot more money. 
Yeah. Law is what sent my kids sends my my kids to college. Salt making is what keeps me healthy and happy, and 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 puts some money in the pocket. Wonderful. Second to last question, Stephen. Who is Benny, and uh, and 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 what's his role with uh, with Amagansett? So Benny, right? Benny is now a one year old beagle. Benny, before Benny, we had Winnie. And, and Winnie was with us for 15 years, and Winnie was a wonderful beagle. And and, and Winnie and Winnie started the role of chief morale officer for us. <laughs> not not so much a mascot, but, but but Winnie would go. She was always always with the team. She went down to the beach and barking, making sure everyone was safe. And she was she was the chief the chief mascot and, and morale officer. And now Benny has, is stepping into her claws. And Benny goes down to the beach. Benny goes down to the salt works. Benny makes sure everyone is, is happy and safe and, uh, and hydrating themselves. So, but Benny is instrumental. <laughs> love it. Love it. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for joining me. Last question. Where best can my listeners find out more about you and Natalie and Amagansett and your business and, and follow along with the story? Sure. Well, the easiest thing is to go to our website, which is www. Amagansett, A-M-A-G-A-N-S-E-T-T, seasalt.com. There are pictures of us there. There are links to a couple of videos. There's our online store that you can buy, and we do ship up to Canada and across the country and to a couple other countries. And follow us on, on social media. We, at this point, are using Instagram a whole lot. We post pictures not only from our own operation, but we love to post pictures from the chefs that are using our salt and uh, and give shout outs to them as well. Fantastic. Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time. I know it's a very busy time of year for you. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to be on Cheftimony. Thanks for being here. You're very, very welcome. Thanks for inviting me. I had a lot of fun. Thanks, Stephen, so much for joining me and for sharing your story, for sharing the story of Natalie and of Benny. I really appreciated our talk. Thanks also for helping me with the pronunciation. And thank you for being here, too. If you're enjoying Cheftimony, please share it with a food-loving friend. Let them know about the podcast and encourage them to subscribe on their favorite podcast app. And speaking of those apps, and again, if you're enjoying the show, please consider leaving either a star rating for Cheftimony or a written review. Or heck, do both. That would be great. I'd really appreciate it. And as I said at the beginning, I love to hear from listeners. So if you've got a comment for the show or a question, perhaps a topic suggestion like Mark, or maybe there's a chef or a lawyer that you think would make a good fit for the show, please just get in touch. You can do that on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or you can just send me that good old-fashioned email to graham at cheftimony.com. Okay, that's all for today. Stay safe, stay well. I'm Graham McLennan, and I'll see you next Friday, right here on Cheftimony. <laughs>